Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hillary Milnes, and joining us today is Rachel Schechtman, the CEO and founder of Story. Thanks for coming in, Rachel. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start for anyone who's unfamiliar, just a quick background of what Story is and, and how you got the idea for the concept. Sure. Um, so Story is a 2,000 square foot physical store in New York, uh, in Chelsea. We started in 2011, uh, right in time for Christmas. And the concept is really using retail as a media channel. So I always describe it as a space that has the point of view of a magazine. We reinvent it entirely, changing the fixtures and the merchandise every three to eight weeks like a gallery. And we sell things like a store. And the reason why I call it retail media is because, you know, if a magazine or a site tells stories by writing articles and taking pictures, our version of expressing a narrative is around merchandise and event programming. And then magazines have advertisers and we have a second revenue stream beyond merchandise, which is uh, brand sponsorship. Nice. So, so yeah, how do you, we just um, walk us through like the, the process for each new story that the that the store sort of takes on um like where does the brand come in where does that editorial point of view come in like how much is you guys how much is the brand uh what um, and i'm sure is it holiday themed right now yes yeah so why don't you just walk us through how that one came together um so the process for creating a story is kind of twofold right it's um since we're basically entering into a relationship with a brand um you know we first flirt and then we date <laughs> and then you know we really ask ourselves a question um you know we've we've partnered with massive fortune 500 companies from ge to american express to target to hp to american express to NBC and on and on and on. And so the three questions we ask ourselves on the brand side are, um, first and foremost, do we like them? Are we going to have fun? Are we going to learn from each other? Because uh, what we do is different and it's intense and it's very quick. Um, so that's important. Uh, the second is, do they add authority and authenticity to the space, to the subject matter, to the field in which they exist? And the third is, can we build a compelling story uh, around them that uh, can come to life and appeal to men, women, and kids between five and 95. Mm -hmm. So if the answer is yes to all three, uh, then it's all systems go. So one example might be Cigna, right? Probably not the first person that comes to mind when you think of a concept shop in Chelsea. Right. Um, so Cigna was interested in exploring retail as a vehicle um, to learn and as like a living lab, a focus group. And Blue Cross Blue Shield was opening up retail stores to service customers, um, and and they just wanted to explore a little bit. So we were inspired to do Feel Good Story, all about health and wellness. And so we had three different sections of the store. We leveraged Cigna technology where you could do virtual reality meditation. Mm -hmm. So in the dead of winter, you could be on the beach of Costa Rica or in the Himalayas. Um, and then, you know, we might also sell during that time a heart rate monitor and healthy food and books on meditation. Um, and so that was kind of the merchandise that we were selling. We would have event programming ranging from 
panels in the evening on the future of healthcare or um, different things around health and wellness and trends in eating and nutrition um, patterns. But on the weekends, we might do yoga and Pilates. So that's an example of how a brand would interact. But but much like a traditional magazine, right? An advertiser can't tell the editor-in-chief what to write about, um, or, or they used to not be able to. <laughs> um, but uh, And so really, you know, we, we have very specific goals and deliverables that would be, you know, blind to the, to the consumer walking through the store, but I know what I have to deliver to the client. Um, and we, we control the store design, um, the programming, and the merchandising. Right. So, and, and that includes the other brands that you pull in to sell. And it, so, exactly. So you're kind of working with all these different partners at once. And so, what, you know, when it comes to the brands that are actually like the, all the things that come together to feed this concept um, underneath the the overlying like sponsorship brand. Who do you work for there? Like, what are what do you think that they get out of it? Especially if it's for such a, a short period of time. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think, uh, you know, when I look at our business model, it's it's really a, in our audience, it's a Venn diagram. It's Fortune 500 companies, it's small businesses, and it's consumers, right? And they each have a different value proposition, right? For the large brand sponsor, it might be R&D, like the Cigna example. Right. But it might be PR for Cody. It might be content creation for NBC. It might be product development for Nickelodeon. Right. So they have these like overarching uh, yeah. big goals. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And for small businesses, so we ran a report the other day. I think we've worked with now in six years, 4,900 different brands. Oh, wow. So it might be from someone who literally makes something in their apartment. It might be... Um, a startup or direct-to-consumer company that doesn't sell in retail stores. You know, we sold Everlane and a myriad of different brands, Sakara Life, um, before they ever had retail distribution. Um, but then we've also sold like Bramford Rolex or, or bigger brands. And um, I think for them, right, it's it's a press release. It's a trade show. 15% of our traffic Monday through Friday is B2B. So you have agencies, you have C-suite executives, you have brands coming to the store to look at it like a living lab, to discover new brands like a trade show. You have media coming there like it's a press release because we're always trying something new. We're always launching brands. Um, It's a different type of experience. And so I think the value, you know, I've always said no one's buying a yacht selling to one store anywhere. So how can we make it a meaningful and deep relationship? And some of these brands have gotten the biggest POs of their career, have been featured in the New York Times. Um, so, so for me, when I think about story, it's how do we take the access and the audience we have and leverage that to connect small businesses to other opportunities. Right. So it's obviously a lot um, more than just making a sale with someone who walks into the store. Um, so just to take a step back, what were you doing when you decided to launch a story? Obviously, we've heard so much about the state of in-store retail it's dead it's not dead it's changing Uh, (laughs) and we're looking at these brands like you mentioned everlane who said that they weren't ever going to have a store and now they do (laughs) a few blocks away from here so what when you decided to start story what was the landscape like and why did you think that this would be uh like an idea that worked yeah so i'm four generations of retail it's in my blood went to my first trade show for my bat mitzvah favors wholesale at 12 oh wow um (laughs) and uh and, you know, fast forwarding prior to story, I was an accidental consultant um, for 10 years. 
and really focusing on the intersection of strategic marketing, merchandising, and business development. And you said an accidental consultant? An accidental consultant. <laughs> I took a six-month consulting job for Bliss Spas, which led to an opportunity with DVF at the CFDA, which led to Tom's, which led to Guilt Group, and so on, and just had amazing opportunities. Uh, knowledge to share. <laughs> <laughs> knowledge to share, and, and I had lots of random theories. And I think the observation there, frankly, which informed story was, you know, I kind of felt that whether you're a 50 person company or a $50 billion company, it's like going to the United Nations with no translator. So marketing speaks Japanese and finance speaks Swahili and merchandising speaks Spanish. And even if a company is doing well, there's so much left on the table by lack of translation and integration. Oh, yeah. And so since I wasn't a threat to anyone going for their promotion or their job title because I was on the outside, I could mash together different languages. And so it was 2011. Not only was it not in vogue to open up a store then, there were no, like, you know, forget Everlane opening up a store in the past couple months, which we all like to tease Michael about. Um, there was no Birchbox store. There was no Warby Parker store. Um, and I think the observation I had and the curiosity I had was, you know, last I checked, we're the same humans who live offline, who live online. And so if there's all these new business models generating income in different ways, subscription retail, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing, those have also created different consumer expectations and consumer behavior, then why the heck are we not reinventing in a physical world? And so I was really curious about that on the retail side. And then on the flip side, on a media side, I can't remember the, the actual number, but Starbucks gets... I don't know, like 30, 50, I don't know, millions and millions and millions of people throughout their locations every week. And to me, that's not just a customer, that's an audience. So how can brands strategically access the right audience in a physical world? So those two observations inform the model. And I thought if we were profitable in a year, then maybe we might be onto something, hopefully. Yeah. And did that happen? <laughs> we did. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think that's really explanatory of, of how we're looking at it now about six years later. Uh, like you said, there's all these new stores. and But when we look at the stores that are being started by these these digitally native uh, brands that, you know, the modern brand, do you feel like retail has been truly reinvented by, by these brands who kind of thought that they were reinventing the wheel? Um, if you go into it, you know, it's how much can the store itself actually change? I think we hear about like, you know, tech and fitting rooms and the iPads, but does it actually do you think it's not really there? Like that feel like the experiences that they try to make different, like, are they even helping the actual in-store experience? Um, so I think it's, you have to be true to your brand, right? And so, you know, it makes sense for an Everlane store, for an Allbird store, you know, to have it lead with merchandise, right? Uh -huh. You know, it shouldn't be a yoga studio, right? It, it, it shouldn't be, you know, an art, a digital arcade, right? That you can do on your phone. Right. Um, and so in those regards, I think when people talk about those brands as new, you know, those were brands that were born on a channel, on a platform that were direct to consumer that was quite different, right? Um, historically, you create a brand, you go to a trade show, you sell it into multiple stores, you typically have a wholesale line of distribution. So the fact that they created a direct to consumer brand without a store, and then it led to a store, I think when people talk about the innovation, it it's around both A, 
digitally native brand, right? And how it evolved and be the actual product, right? Both of them, you know, all birds is a level of comfort that like is insanely amazing. <laughs> um, it's like walking on air, you know, and, and Michael and Everlane is about transparency and quality and accessibility. Um, but I think, I do think the store can be reinvented. Um, I don't think in every case and every category and every brand it, it should, um, and I don't even think we've seen it, you know, but like, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I just think, you know, there's so many what ifs, uh, I'm not completely sold, you know, on having zillions of screens in an environment unless they're additive to an experience. And I always ask the question, is that screen giving me an experience I can't get on my couch? And more often than not, it's, it's not, I can get a directory. I can shop on my phone. I don't need an iPad in the middle of a department store. Right. If I can do that on my couch. Uh, right. Um, and you know, I think what's interesting from the story perspective is you guys are offering a new retail partner for brands. Like you mentioned the small brands, the large brands, um, everything in between. And I think that says a lot about how people feel about department stores today. And so where, where do you see that, that, space going. Do you think that that's been reinvented in any sort of way? <laughs> that's a no. <laughs> um, you know, it's challenging and, you know, I'm friend, you know, I have a, I have a, a lot of friends who work in that and, and, you know, that side of the business. Um, and you know, I feel for them because first and foremost, and you know, this is obviously not to you, but in general, you know, the business media leaves out the fact that they're all public companies for the most part, right? And especially all the big department stores that everyone's talking about, right? And so you're asking a hundred plus year old business model to completely do a U-turn and change how it creates value, yet the system which determines its value, Wall Street, remains unchanged. So there you have the innovator's dilemma right there. And so like, there's Wall Street handcuffs. And to make the changes that one might argue would potentially need to to happen to see the change and see the transformation in the value creation potentially are not ones that are going to happen within a quarter and that are not going to help comps, help comps immediately. I don't have the answer because that's not my expertise. You know, maybe there's like a 36 you know, change in, in, and how they assess that 36 month, you know, period, who knows what the answer is, but I just want to preface the answer by saying that because it's not like all things are compared equal. Right. And also you have a lot of direct to consumer brands, um, that are private companies, right. So they can do certain things. Um, but I, but what I think, you know, to answer the question now, um, I think, one of the things that, that as an outsider, you know, I often think about is, you know, you're, you might be changing the assortment and, you know, adding some different experiential elements to the in-store experience, but you're not changing the org chart. You're not changing the job titles. You're not changing the training. You're not changing the compensation. You know, you can do those cosmetic things, right? But unless you kind of change your diet, right, and and rebuild the fundamentals, I mean, I've often thought if we were to mar a whiteboard, um, a business model from scratch for a multi-billion dollar, multi-brand, multi-category um, store, 
I'd argue over, I don't know, 50, 60% of the job titles might be a bit different. Um, the amount of employees, the compensation. And so, I mean, a great example of that, I think, is Westfield, which I know was just acquired, um, the, the shopping mall developer. You know, a year or two ago, they bought um, a Broadway production company, right? Like that does set design. You know, that makes a lot of sense because right. if if they're selling sponsorship and experiential in their common spaces, it's entertainment, right? Retail. Exactly. But like, go buy that expertise, go hire that expertise, you know, I, I'm not, or go, go take certain talent and train and rebuild. Um, so, so those are where I personally see opportunities. Um, in that area comes down to the talent and it goes back to what you said about in retail companies there's all these different departments that are speaking different languages right exactly they haven't really successfully found a way to talk to each other i think when you hear about companies that are have found something that works or a strategy that works it it usually goes like across departments we're not just heads down exactly i think too like someone gave a great example of that is a buyer is bonused on sell-through performance right but the picture of an item really impacts its sales like i remember that from my like old school catalog days right right so the photographer the creative director isn't bonus based on sell through now these are generalizations but they're you know that's the majority right right so if it's a really like crappy picture um of a board game that has little pieces and it bombs and it was you know one of the top five bets that buyer made an image can make or break that, right? So you don't have incentives aligned with two different areas of a business that need to collaborate. To still contribute to the sale. Exactly. So how did you go about making hires? Obviously, it's a very different structure uh, in terms of how a company works. But you know, when you looked at the team you wanted to build, who did you know that, that you needed that might be a little bit um, unconventional? Well, I knew nothing. So let's start there because <laughs> I had never managed anyone before. The business model hadn't really been done before. So, you know, the analogy I often use is it's like, you know, and it's not, you know, it, it, it's different now, but especially for the first few years, I always say I owned a sports team with players on the field and no coaches on the bench because you can't hire a coach unless you know what game you're playing. Um, and I didn't even know what game we were playing. Yeah. You know, we're, one day was it soccer, another day it might be field hockey, another day it was football. You know, oh, is this player good for offense or for defense? Or how many offense do we need versus how many defense do we need? Um, I don't even watch sports, so it's ironic <laughs> that I'm really giving all these sports analogies other than hockey, ice hockey. But um, so I, so it took me a very long time. And and my sister's my my partner in crime, and she's on the ops and HR side. Uh-huh. And you know, there's some things that she does that I think are are pretty awesome. So you know, we call our store team storytellers. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, obviously, we would love it if someone buys something and leaves the store with a shopping bag. But I'm just as happy if someone leaves having had a wonderful experience and they don't buy a thing as long as they learn something or were entertained or something. Right. Um, but what she does is she does these group interviews. Um, and what she'll do is a couple things. She'll put too few chairs out um, because it's really important that we find people who are proactive versus reactive. And someone can say they're proactive, oh, but that's yeah. something you need to see. So who in the group is going to get up when someone comes and there's not a chair? Who's going to be like, oh, where can I get another chair? Um, or test. Right. <laughs> or when we, you know, she, she locks the front door of the store. I mean, it's typically before opening shows. She'd do that anyways. Who gets up when someone comes late to the interview? Because inevitably someone's late. Um, who gets up to let them in? Right. And so, 
you know, what we learned early on is many of the attributes that make someone successful to a traditional retail environment, maintaining systems, consistency, um, is the opposite story, right? Because like the month we have a hot towel shave station and we have to figure out a system for cleaning towels every day at the cleaners, right? But then the next you know, story, we're doing virtual reality meditation and we have tech support we have to have on speed dial. You know, they're very different triggers and they're not ones that fit into a GPA mm-hmm. or a certain set of experience. So um, it's been interesting, but we have, you know, an amazing team. I think more than half of our staff has been there um, for, you know, over half the time we've been in business. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, like you said, it's, you have to do something different every, every time that the the store changes. Um, and as we are talking to, to people, especially on the department store side, it's this whole idea that the buyers, the, the department stores, they need to be editors. It's this editorial point of view. That's how you stand out and how you, you know, put together your collection that that's so important. So, who like who's on the ground looking for these brands that you that you carry that are that are going to set you guys apart? So that's my favorite thing. You know, at the end of the day, that's you know, that comes from, you know, my mom's the ultimate merchant. She was she's been in the gourmet food business for a zillion years. And I remember when I was walking the gift show with her, I looked at her and there was like, oh, right. It's the Jacob Javits Center. There's like gazillions of kinds of products and vendors. And I was, I was aisle after aisle and all these things and stories and products. I was like, you can shop for a living. Like that's (laughs) a job. Um, and literally my whole life, it's not necessarily been about, you know, it might be about shopping versus buying, which are, you know, um, or looking, but I think that, um, we, we all, I guess have certain things that we're better at than others. And I've just always been drawn to, objects and you know it could be anything from the most like quirky bizarre looking stuffed animal to right now we have this levitating light bulb that I think is really cool to like these you know embroidered crystal bangles from uh (laughs) from Paris so it it's really all over the map and sometimes you find them at trade shows online um you know I've had different buyers over the years and that's also you know I think at corporate it's been much more challenging for me personally to be honest to to find the right people for the right roles um and you know for merchandising you know and then also the challenges you know we outgrow people I had the most amazing buyer for three years you know we don't sell online yet although that's about to change but you know she did everything possible she could at story and she's like you know she's 26 years old and she needs to learn and grow and develop and I was like all right go fly away (laughs) but you know I think you know now we have a pretty good idea um you of of the energy of the type of person we're that works and it's really a partnership with with myself and you know, I think once someone understands that I like everything from the $2 tchotchke to the like $400 floating light bulb, um, you know, then they kind of get in the groove and they're kind of part of the journey and they bring their own flavor to it and their own finds as well, which is also great. And we do this thing called pitch night. Everyone just brings all their, their cool stuff. Yeah. So there's this, you see my necklace. Yeah. I know no one watching can see it, but, um, it's called mathematics by Beth mockery. Uh-huh. Oh. So it's a hidden message, cool. right? Um, yeah, what was happening is we were getting pitched so many products. I didn't have time to see them all. Uh-huh. So I was like, let me just have everyone show up with their products and show them. And then I was like, well, I don't want them just showing up for me. I'm one store. So if, 
a small business wants sales, they also want media. So I had my friends at Cool Hunting come. Beth from Mathematics came and and she pitched our first pitch night. She had never sold a product before. I was like, oh my God, she like passed my three second rule. I was like, I have to have it um, personally and in the store. Um, put it in the store. This customer came in by the name of Whoopi Goldberg. She bought it. She then put the necklace on air. And within Beth's first year of business, she did six figures because of access. Wow. And then Whoopi heard about pitch night and she said, can I be on the pitch night panel? So now we do four pitch nights a year. We've had everyone from Jaden Smith to Livy Kimmett Nordstrom. I bring in other retailers. You know, we've had MoMA, we've had West Elm, I've had Tori Johnson from Good Morning America, Neiman Marcus. And it's only, it's not a spectator sport. We don't let anyone, you know, come and cover it. You can only come if you're pitching. So it's also a community night to create access. And, you know, people now fly in from all over for wow. And you mentioned, obviously, it's good if someone buys something in the store, but that's not the, you don't, you're, you have the ability to not care. So how did you get to that point? Like where you mentioned the, the brand sponsorships obviously bring in money. How else had you built this like ecosystem where, because I think this, the serious thing about retail right now is like, you could have a really cute store in Chelsea, but like, how much can you scale that? How long is that, is that going to last? Yeah. Is, is any, you know, you, you know, the stores you walk by, you're like, does anyone actually buy anything in yeah. there? <laughs> Well, I will say this. Uh, so the holiday story, Home for the Holidays, which is on now, this store is a living gift guide. It has over 2,300 gifts. Wow. And um, there's four different rooms, and each room's a different gift recipient. So it's like for her, for him, something for everyone. And each year, you know, one year it might be a mountain retreat. This year it's inspired by the movie The Greatest Showman um, about the life of P.T. Barnum with, with 20th Century Fox. And so it's circus-inspired. Um, but if I look at that as a comp or, or this past weekend, so this past weekend we did, uh, 638 transactions. Um, and I, I don't really publicly share sales, but if you were to look at it on a comp basis on retail averages, uh, it's in the top four for sales per square foot. It's the only time of year I look at sales per square foot because for us, it isn't really a metric. I call it instead. We look at really experience per square foot um, throughout the year, but, but I actually can look at holiday. Um, so, you know, for us, it actually, you know, it is important for the business model to me that, that obviously there's, there's revenue from sales a, cause I think it's important. Right. Um, but it's also, you know, in theory, it's like someone buying a magazine, right? If the content's not good, the magazine's not going to sell. No one's going to buy it off a new stand. They're not going to renew their subscription. And then it goes out of business, right? So someone buying a product and story, in theory, is them subscribing to that issue. They bought it off the newsstand. Right. So to me, the sales an indication of someone's receptiveness to our editorial point of view. Um, so but so you have the, the sales and the revenue and... Um, and then the brand sponsorships. Any anywhere else that that you guys are are sort of bringing in money? Um, the third revenue stream is events. Um, it's nothing. It, we haven't focused on it really. I mean, it's part of our stories. We produced over four hundred and fifty events to date. Uh -huh. So it's anything from like you know, like I mentioned, the yoga and Pilates on the weekend. Um, you know, we do interviews and Facebook Live with everyone from like, you know. We've done Bobby Brown with Christine Barberich. We did Christina Tosi from Milk Bar with Fast Company. Um, you know, lots of different um, talks. We've done mixology class. We do kids cooking and crafts. So there, there is a little something for everyone. And then, you know, now and again, people will come to us and say, hey, we want to host this event there or that. And if it meets that same criteria, if it is contextually relevant, um, and whatnot will will do it. I think it's a massive opportunity for f 
to further build out that revenue stream. Um, you know, it just hasn't been a focus, but probably will be a little bit more moving forward as well, you know, digital as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you're hinting at the online story. Uh, what does, how do you, how are you going to make an online store feel as special as the in-store? I've always said, listen, you could find old interviews with, with me being like, we're going to have five stores in three years and yeah, we'll have e-commerce in six months. I mean, <laughs> I had no freaking idea what I was doing when I launched this. I was like, yeah, I have this little theory about this little store. Let's try this. And oh my God, is it a lot of work. But, um, but I also think like, you know, I want to do something with purpose and intention. And I think there's no shortage of place to buy things and there's lots of wonderful things out there. And I didn't want to do e-commerce just to do e-commerce not to. And I also wanted to stay true to our model in that, um, it is, you know, dense and, you know, you could look at a picture of a story, but it is so different when you're in there. I mean, our sponsors and our partners say that all of the time, they'll look at our presentation and they'll come in the store and they're like, oh my God, I had no idea, right? So I, it would do the same thing online, right? So um, we have a handful of different ideas. My, my hope would be, I'm not going to commit to it, that by next Christmas, someone would be able to buy stuff from Story Online and that there would be features and an experience um, that are true to our brand and, and potentially different from, from other e-commerce experiences. And so looking at the brand sponsorships, um, like you mentioned, when a company like an NBC or HP come in, what are they, like, what do you think it says about the state of, of retail in the, in the world, essentially, that these companies are interested in, in, in doing a story partnership? What are they trying to get out of it? I, I think, um, so when we partner with a sponsor, um, there's one of four deliverables, right? So you know, you could also frankly say we're a consulting firm, you know, with a retail outpost uh -huh. and I have very specific deliverables. So one might be PR and marketing, leveraging the store as a press release. Uh, the second might be as a living lab. What we can do is, um, you know, every story starts with a white canvas, right? So we kind of use, you know, varying amounts of, different merchandise and technology and event programming tactics to drive results connected to those deliverables. So um, if it's R&D and leveraging the store as a living lab, that might be a different experience. We heat map the store. There's, there's lots of things that we do that are a combination of quantitative and qualitative insights that the brand gets at the end that if you're Target and you have over, you know, 2,000 doors or however many stores they have, um, you know, maybe merchandising strategies at story might inform how they merchandise in store. It's a lot easier doing it, you know, with one store in eight weeks than across the suite of, of stores across the country. Right, of course. Um, the third bucket is product development. Um, so for Nickelodeon or for Fox this time around, um, we create exclusive product with different brands. Um, so for Nickelodeon, we did 100 products in three months. For Fox this month, we did a small capsule collection, which is also available at Bloomingdale's. Um, and then the fourth bucket is content creation. So when NBC, specifically the USA Network and Mr. Robot sponsored Disrupt Story, we did like a live panel with the cast in store. We had 100 VIPs and fans in the room. So that served its own function. Um, but then it was live streamed. 
and had millions of impressions, not just that night, but from the press that reverberated thereafter. Right. Uh, I think a trend we're seeing in, in, in storytelling is how Instagrammable is the store. Right, right. <laughs> it's, yes. It's Instagrammable. True. It's changing all the time, too. Uh, so we're almost out of time, but do you think that the, the retail apocalypse is overstated? Is that an actual thing that's happening right now? You know, I, I don't know if it's overstated or not because... Who's to know, you know, when someone says apocalypse, like, how are you defining that, right? And so is it in the count of stores? Is it the dollar spent? Is it the foot traffic? You know, there's so many nuances. Um, you know, it, it grabs headlines. You know, I have I, I have often said, you know, we haven't even seen retail Armageddon yet. So I am guilty of it as well. Um, you know, I think shopping malls and shopping centers are having a big wake up call. Um, and, and I think one trend we're going to start seeing is service businesses using retail as a customer service acquisition and retention tool. Uh Um, so I don't know if it's overstated or understated. There is a shift. I don't think we've near, we're, we're anywhere near the end of it. I think, uh, what it's going to look like in 10 years, 15, 20 years is a whole new ball game. I know it's, Drawn out, you know, yeah. <laughs> just want everyone to figure everything out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, great. Well, thanks Rachel so much for joining us. Uh, this was fun and thank you for listening. We'll be back in January with a new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and Google play and leave us any feedback you have. Mm-hmm.